this is a conversation that needs to be had without a doubt. So much so that I woke up and I spoke to a friend of mine, a former colleague, Ukaas Tole. It turns out he was in the country. I said, Endo, please, a studio of four. Joe, how's it going? First of all, you've been away from radio so long, you don't even know how to turn on the mic anymore. I forget these things. I forget these things. <laughs> it's one of those habits that uh, I let go a few weeks ago. <laughs> oh, man. That's how it goes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the reason I invited you here, as I'm sure you are well aware, our president is embroiled in a scandal. I don't know if it's the biggest presidential scandal we've seen in a while, but if everything I've read is to be believed, this is something that, that could turn out to be even bigger than we imagined. <laughs> so, it turns out that there was a robbery that took place, as everybody now knows, um, at one of his farms. Yeah. Initially, I thought this story seems far-fetched, but then the president came out and confirmed that indeed there was a robbery and that foreign currency was stolen from his farm. What he hasn't confirmed yet is how much foreign currency was stolen, uh, but we have then been able to corroborate via staff members and other reports from credible sources, might I add. Uguti, it looks like it was somewhere around the tune of $4 million. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing that happens is people go, well, Arthur Fraser is a compromised individual. We know Uguti, his uh, loyalties lie with the Zuma faction. Can he be believed? In the first day, those seemed like very good questions. After the president came out and confirmed everything, those questions go out the window now. Yeah. Because the matter of credibility is actually just null and void. The actual president has confirmed the story. Yeah. Look, it's a very major scandal. I think we cannot underplay just how problematic the whole transaction and the whole state of affairs is. Mm. So, of course, the fact that Arthur Fraser was the one that sort of put it into the public domain, obviously, instinctively, for a lot of people, will be like, well, actually, Arthur Fraser's got his own entanglements. But at the end of the day, we need to be able to look at the story rather than look at the personalities. Because remember, since the greatest danger is that, for me, the litmus test has always been, is this an ANC insider? If it is, then treat them with the same level of skepticism. Mm. So, whether it's the president himself or whether it's Arthur Fraser, the skepticism must be universal. So the problem that then emerges is that obviously, even if Arthur Fraser was the most compromised individual, the fact of the matter is that we still have a problem in relating to the president's own conduct. Mm. The problem that I have is that in far too many instances, the president keeps coming to uh, to the citizens and asking us to give him the moral benefit of the doubt. Yes. So the same thing that he did when he says that he read a contract, uh, you know, in, in close range. That was an upright lie because if he had read that contract in close range, then we would have known that what he said was not what, what happened. Mm. So that's the first problem that we had. And then his obsession with keeping the ANC united at all costs means that he's literally made his bed and now he must lie in it because the fact that Arthur Fraser was allowed to stay as DG and be transferred from one department to another rather than being exiled from the state altogether when everybody knew of how problematic an individual could be means that the president laid his bed and now he must you know, he must live with the consequences. Now, before we even get there, because a lot of people have been bringing that up, saying, Guti, Cyril is now compromised to such an extent because he's been so obsessed with this idea of unity. And it, I'm here to yeah. say, Guti, that aside, these are Cyril's own actions. Yeah. So whether or not he had kept Arthur, Arthur Fraser as part of his administration, whether or not Arthur Fraser was not part of his administration, he still had and would have had the foresight and the option not to act in the manner in which he acted. Yeah. And right now, what we understand is money got stolen from him. They then 
apprehended the suspect without any legal authority, right? Because no case had been opened, mm. held the suspect against her will for two days, which is tantamount to uh, kidnapping, kidnapping mm. if this is to be believed. Mm. And this came from a different source now, not Arthur Fraser. Yeah. So before you even get there, just you Arthur Fraser aside, why would the president compromise himself like that? Because then another question I'm going to ask you will yeah. be, do you deal with matters in terms of principle or in terms of preference? Mm. Because had this been any other individual that you perhaps let you prefer less, yeah. this thing would have been long ago a big deal. Look, again, the president, you have to really question the quality of the advice that he gets and the people that he surrounds himself with. Because I think, obviously, the fact that a robbery happened, first and foremost, is something that should have been escalated. Because... Think about it. It is the president's farm. It's not like my random house in the middle of nowhere. It's literally the one place where you would think that there is an elevated sense of security surrounding that particular premises. Dare we even say it's a matter of national security? Exactly. The president's premises being invaded by random thieves is a problem for me. And for him to have then taken the view that it's probably not something that he wants to publicize. One of the articles I read said that he didn't want to create panic in the state if, if people knew that a robbery had happened. I don't understand that argument. I'm not sure what its merits are because the key question here is that a crime had been committed and the responsibility would have been to say this is how it must be reported. Now, there's the first. that's the first dimension. You and I randomly get pickpocketed and because we know that nothing's going to get recovered, you're not going to go and report that because it's a waste of your time and you know nothing's going to get recovered. So the problem comes in when he then or his people or whoever is responsible for it takes the action upon themselves to then say let's find the individual, let's interrogate them and do all of this because clearly this was not a person who looked at it and thought, oh, well, you know, the police force is so bad with other things. Let me let it go. It's not a matter that was let go. It's something that was followed upon. And when they did the follow up, that's when the tricky part comes in because you think, well, why would anyone in close proximity to the president? So even if the president does not issue an instruction, surely at some point in time, it's going to be this only happened because it was a president's property uh, where the robbery happened. So he doesn't get away with this plausible deniability where he can simply say, I don't know. There's a lot to cover. And if you've got questions, you can just give us a shout right now. Uh, Ujoba will be with us for the remainder of the show. We're going to try to get to as much of this as we can because it also it brings up questions about the ANC as an organization, brings up questions about South Africa as a country, and we as citizens have a vested interest in the story, regardless of how it turns out. So you can let us know what your thoughts are. When we come back, Joey, I want to speak to, or rather get to the issue of uh, financial flows and, and where the problems are, again, with this story that we've heard. On the street, on the air. Welcome back to Car Drive. It's 959. Usually I'd be playing a song, but in the interest of time, seeing as how we've got a guest in the studio, uh, I think maybe we can skip this song and we can get straight to our discussion. And the discussion goes as follows. Maybe you're the perfect person to have in the studio, especially because you are a CA, right? So according to generally accepted accounting principles, when do you recognize a transaction? <laughs> Accountants are obsessed with past events So something must have happened And then you, you, you account for it So we're not very futuristic in our outlook So yes, once something has happened Then you need to account for it uh, As soon as possible, hopefully So whether or not payment has been made Even if it's a post-dated payment That, uh, that transaction must be recognized yeah, Am yeah, I correct? Yeah, the transaction is not a cash flow question It's a question of a series of events That say, substantively We've decided what the performance obligations are And we've executed on them The cash flows may come later on But what we track is the actual um, sequence of events Okay, so if I were to sell 
for example, I don't know, any kind of game or where to sell, uh, I don't know. Um, Not your soul, like everything else. <laughs> Let's yeah. say you sell a rhino or whatever it is and somebody were to pay me in foreign currency. Mm. That transaction has happened, it needs to be declared. Yes. Am I correct? Yes, of course. There okay. is absolutely no doubt that the transaction flow is at the point in time where somebody po- pushes down the hammer, assuming it was an auction, that is when the event has happened. The mm. cash flow sequence afterwards is simply a matter of tracking the finalization of it. But the obligation and the responsibility to say that this has been done actually gets executed at the point in time when that event happens. Okay. Now, let's speak about foreign currency. Mm. If you receive foreign currency in a country, how much time do you have in which to declare that foreign currency? Not a lot. And I think, obviously, um, for example, if you're traveling out of the country, you mm-hmm. may obviously get foreign currency on your way out of the country and then you're going to spend it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So clearly the time frame, uh, uh, the time frames are not fixed because it would be pointless for you to declare it moments before you leave the country. Yes. The problem comes in when you are then back in the country and then you hold foreign currency and particularly foreign currency at that particular amount, the mm. amounts, because the president doesn't tell us what the number is. We know, according to him, that it's not $4 million, but I think we also know that it's not two rand. It's mm. something in between. So obviously at that point in time, the question that he then has to be able to provide a very cogent explanation for is what is his understanding of when the obligation to actually report or at least, you know, document that foreign currency when was that obligation triggered and what did he do about it? Because mm. at this point in time, we are literally discovering new facts as we go along. So we haven't had a proper explanation of in the president's mind. Firstly, the people that were in a position to transact in hard foreign currency for that particular amount. How did that come to be? Because we'd have to ask, how did that, those people? They were buying, have $4 million, if it's $4 million. The question, of course, is that it may well turn out that there's 10 or 20 people that bought. Until mm. the president decides, that gives us the information, we literally have to ask the difficult questions. So if it's one individual with $4 million US dollars in hard currency, there is a big problem because the president himself should have had the presence of mind to say, wait, hold on, how is it that anyone holds so much in foreign currency? And then for the president to then engage in a transaction with that person, it's a tricky one. Yeah. Now, I ask you this because it's going to lead to a very, very tricky train of events, as you point out. Uh, and I suppose you can have your own questions that you can ask. Kai. You can give us a shout right now. 086-00-00959. let us say, for example, a transaction had taken place. And let's say everything, according to the president's mind, was kosher and above board. Is that good enough? Because just for you to plead ignorance to a legal situation or an obligation is not a sound enough defense, is it? Look, the president is the one that told us many years ago, I think around 2014, when he eventually became the deputy president of the country. He's the one that says, I understand the inherent conflicts that may be perceived if I retain my stakes in business. And of course, I'm going to disengage myself. So he set up a blind trust Mm -hmm. and that blind trust is supposed to be managed independently away from him. Mm -hmm. So the understanding that we've been laboring under for the past eight years or so is this, this is a man has distanced himself from all business activities because of the risk that, that, that is associated with it. That's the first part. Clearly, that was a misrepresentation of facts because he, it, it, this is not longer a private hobby. Mm. So you and I having a couple of chickens and, and owning a farm, that's one thing. This is a person who engages in business activities relating to that farming endeavor. To the so of course, the person who told us that I no longer do business, 
then we discover that he's actually doing this type of businesses. That for me is a president who has lied to the country, first and foremost. The second problem is then to say, well, how many times has this happened? Because remember, we are only being told about that one particular instance where after this auction or whatever process they followed, then there was a theft. This was not the only time that something has happened in that particular game farm. So the questions that we have to be able to get answers for is first, wait, hold on. What did you mean when you said in 2014 you were disengaging from all business activities? And is this the one that you decided to quarantine in your own name? This is the one activity that you decided to still um, get involved in. What were the parameters? Because now the key question that we always have to ask when people say I'm distancing myself from business is that yes, you cannot sit as a chair of a mining company when you appoint the director of uh, the, 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 the minister of mineral resources. So those are clear. We still need to know what were the parameters that he applied to then say this is the one particular business activity or business line that I still want to maintain an active interest in. Hold that thought because after this news item, we're going to need to delve deeper into it. Uh, we're joined in the studio by a good friend of the show's Kaya Sole. If you've got any questions, you can give us a shout 86 Kaya Drive with Seasway. Monday to Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. And so, on that note, we're not going to go into a song right now. We're just going to get back into our conversation. Joined in studio by Kaya Sole. Uh, special guest having this discussion regarding this presidential matter which has turned out to be quite the scandal so far salacious okay so okay Jobe, we're having a discussion about declaration of transactions uh the president still having business interests which evidently it would appear he still does uh and how that could be seen as how he you know he misled the public because we were under the impression that he was no longer doing anything like that. Well, we were not under the impression. It's what he said. Yeah. So it's not like we. It was we. It was implied by anything. Literally, he made a particular declaration to say, "I will no longer be the executive chairman of Shanduka." And at that point in time, I was sitting on so many other boards. So he went through a structured process of then saying that I'm going to set up what is referred to as a blind trust. Yes. So in that blind trust, it simply says that you appoint someone who's free to transact with those companies in the way that they see fit. You obviously still receive the benefits because at the end of the day, they're still your companies. They're still your entities. So what was supposed to happen is that that arrangement was supposed to be in place for the duration of his tenure in office, firstly as deputy president and then as a president. Now, I want to put emphasis on the word blind. It's called a blind trust because you are not to have any kind of interference in how these monies are invested. Am I correct? Yeah, so that's the first part. But the real reason you have to put it as a blind trust is that obviously the risk that always exists is that if you now know that within that blind trust, that company, for example, is about to bid for a particular tender, Mm -hmm. and then you are still the state president who has the ability to influence when you sign or or gazette a bill, for example, Mm -hmm. that has a material financial implication for that particular entity. That's why we need to have that blind trust so that no one comes back and say, wait, hold on, you signed that bill into law yesterday. Today, and then the company that, that, belo- that, yeah, that belongs to you in one way or another now participates in those particular transactions and then they get the financial windfall. So that's the inherent conflict of interest that you resolve by putting together a blind trust. The question of whether there is a thing called a blind trust is a matter of philosophical construct because then the question would be 
some of the public procurement work, for example, yes. becomes so publicly, uh, you know, uh, such publicly available information, you don't have to call the person who manages your blind trust to know that that company is about to bid for this thing. Because if you think, for example, if you want to get into transactions with ESCOM, for example, mm. and then the minister says we're going to publish a list of all the bidders, successful or otherwise, the president doesn't have to call whoever runs his blind trust. That information comes to him as a matter of, you know, everybody getting access to that information. So then that's why everybody says that you must have that sense of distance between you and those organizations because otherwise somebody might come back and say, well, isn't it ironic that you've just passed this particular law? Remember he did this last year when he called that mid-morning press conference that I was invited to where he then told us that the answer for how companies can do self-generation of electricity is 100 megawatts. Mm. While weeks later, I think about six weeks earlier actually, his own cabinet had signed a gazette that the minister Mandashe released that said that the answer was 10 megawatts. So the question that I specifically put to him that day was to say, wait, hold on, six weeks ago, a fully assembled cabinet came out and said that the answer was 10 megawatts and everybody had said that anything below 50 is not going to work. So I put to him two questions. I said, firstly, what has happened in the past six weeks that's now said to you the answer is 100 megawatts? That's the mm-hmm. first thing. The second question that I put to him is that, well, we understood why the government had been resistant to saying the answer should be 50 or 100 because it has financial implications for the viability of ESCOM. So I specifically asked him, what happens to ESCOM now? And he said, we actually don't know. So he came out and he said that we are changing the rules of the land. We are saying that the answer is 100 megawatts and nobody had done a financial viability assessment on what happens to ESCOM when that was the case. And the point I raised to him is that you and I might, may like the answer because we feel that, look, maybe this is the right way to go. But I'm troubled and I'm worried about the stability of decision making at cabinet level when six weeks ago you came up with an answer of XYZ and then now you wake up and then you say the answer is 100 megawatts. That for me was problematic. Okay. Now, this would also explain why, as an example, not pertaining to his administration, but in other parts of the world, people frowned upon somebody like Donald Trump uh, continuing to do business at the Mar-a-Lago, for example, because they knew that that could lead to traffic that was directed towards the Mar-a-Lago, which would obviously benefit him as an individual, right? Yeah. Uh, And so I imagine you'd be dealing with something very similar in this particular case, because who wouldn't want to go to a game lodge that's owned by the president? Yeah, and I think, obviously, remember... It's always said in the world of politics and business and how they intersect that the most important decisions don't get taken at a cabinet setting. It's the ones that get taken at the ninth hole of a golf course, for example. Mm -hmm. It's the ones where the social engagements provide that level of access that most people just wouldn't be able to have. So the reason presidents in particular, like golf days, for example, is that suddenly it's something that you sell to the business elite to say, there's a point in time where you can actually engage socially with the president. But of course, once you've paid 100,000 rand for a golf day, for example, why would you not want to mention that, by the way, president, I have an interest in X, Y, Z. Whether the president then acts on that, whether he then activates something in order to make that deal happen, that becomes a secondary consideration. But we do know that the business elite specifically understand the value of that socializing. The ANC, after its January 8th statement, always has a golf day after because no it's a matter of you can have access to business leaders political leaders people who actually make the decisions and i'd be worried if anyone pays a million rand for a golf day and doesn't mention anything relating to their own business interest because i would say that's a million rand wasted (laughs) oh man okay there's a lot happening here there's a lot to discuss you can give us a shout and let us know what your thoughts are zero eight six double zero double zero nine five nine come back i want to speak about the anc as a party we obviously know that right now there is uh, an election going on and they're headed towards a conference at the end of the year. 
this is not a coincidence that we have this discussion right now about this particular individual. Kaya Drive with Sizwe. Monday to Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Joined in the studio by a good friend of the shows, Kaya Sole. Uh, and man, the conversation just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Before we went to traffic, he had touched on the ANC as a political party. Uh, and I think that's also a very good point now to bring into this particular discussion, right? So now we can go back to Arthur Fraser, right? Now we can, I guess, assume that anybody who is of sound mind can see the motives when it comes to this situation, right? Yeah. There's currently a step-aside rule in the ANC, which up until this weekend, I had always assumed only applies once you have been charged. Uh, And then I woke up and I thought to myself, you know, in terms of being charged, obviously the NPA is in charge of that. Uh, Would it have to be uh, a national prosecuting authority that that, that charges you? Or would a private prosecution, for example, be, be, be adequate? All right. But within that question... I then went to read further, and the wording that I came across was the following, and I quote, who have been charged with corruption or other serious crimes, and those who are alleged, reported, or implicated in corrupt practices. (laughs) That wording is very damning because by that wording, Cyril, the president of the ANC and the country is implicated. Yes. So let's go back to 2017, what the ANC did. So at that point in time, remember, the ANC was struggling with the question of its PR associated with its former president in particular and the things he was getting himself entangled in. Mm -hmm. So that's the starting point. And then the ANC also started acknowledging that it was facing a waning sense of social legitimacy where people were saying there are far too many people within your leadership structures who've got all these entanglements, whether people were charged or whether they were being dragged through the courts. And the question that the ANC wanted to resolve is how do you then reposition or just establish yourself as, you know, the leader of society when society says, but there are so many people within your ranks that are the problem. So the ANC step aside rule is essentially a quite utopian in nature in that it tried to create a, 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 a party that is so driven by integrity and principles. Absolutely no one with a stink or, 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 you know, a whiff of smell could ever be in, in leadership position. So that's where it all starts from. Mm. So it, it, it sounded like a good idea at the time. So the first limitation, of course, is when do you activate it? And the key distinction here is that in a country where the NPA, for example, or the prosecution's agencies are regarded as sufficiently independent enough for them to act on the question of what the case is rather than who the individuals are, Mm -hmm. then you wouldn't have a problem. So no one's ever going to say, no, the NPA charging me is because of political considerations. It's Mm -hmm. not supposed to have political considerations. So for as long as a legitimate state organ does its job properly, then you could say, look, the NPA has charged you for fraud and corruption. We think you should, you know, step aside from frontline politics until that matter is resolved. Mm -hmm. So that's the first part. The more difficult part is that we also live in a country where in instances where the NPA cannot build a case, you then have an option, for example, of saying, no, I still think a case exists here, so therefore you pursue private prosecution. Yes. So the fundamental limitation of the ANC's own step-aside clause is that literally all you had to imagine, well, what would happen if 
everybody started putting charges against each other in order to torpedo their political um, you, you know, pathway. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially the, the risk that always existed. Now, how it has now transpired is that the one individual who has access to more information than everybody else combined is, of course, the guy that used to run the state security agency. Mm-hmm. And, of course, because he's put this out in the public domain, it literally then says, well, never mind the parameters, whether it's a private persecution or whatnot. It's literally saying to the NPA, wait, hold on. Aren't you aware of this? Why haven't you done this? So the pressure then goes to the NPA to explain why they will or will not pursue the matter. And if they do pursue the matter, then, of course, it's now within the the ambit of the step aside clause because now a proper state agency has charged you on the basis that they think there is a case so therefore you'd have to step aside. The problem, of course, with the people that did it is that they've left it a bit too late, haven't they? Now, this is the big question, right? I don't know if you watch movies, but essentially, if you were to pluck the ANC president out of contestation of power headed towards December, where does that leave the ANC? What happens in a matter like that? Well, the ANC will simply have to get there in Nasrec or whichever venue they choose on day one. And the first thing they have to do is delete the clause that's created created such problems for them. So, of course, there have been people within the ANC who have felt that Unfortunately, there are far too many unknown variables relating to this clause. And I think one that you have to acknowledge is that judicial processes tend to be so slow and lethargic in South Africa. You could literally be dragged to the courts for three or four years. That of obviously puts a dead stop to your political career only for the NPA to belatedly say, actually, maybe this is not a case uh, that we can pursue. Mm. Or even the courts themselves can say, no, actually, this person is not guilty. Now, of course, in that, inter- in that interregnum, other people, other political rivals would have taken over that space and then they may obviously displace you in one way or another. So it's always been that the, the big problem that it wasn't the ANC that said whenever a person is guilty of this, this is the process we're going to follow and within a week or two we'll have an answer. It simply says let us defer to processes that are beyond the ANC's own control. So if a, a, a case, for example, is put against the president and he is charged legitimately through a proper structure and that case then drags over beyond December, then of course the, question, the, the ANC will be in this self-inflicted crisis because they'll then say, well, actually, are we going to ensure that this clause remains in place because then the president cannot contest. He's the one that's been reminding people that, oh, by the way, we said as a party, Zandile Kumete, you should not actually take on that position. So when she got re-elected a a, a few weeks ago, then the NC came back and said, yes, she's been re-elected, but she's still not going to do that job. So it's a self-inflicted wound by the NC. And they've been told for the past four years that there are far too many unknown variables that may be self-defeating and finally Arthur Fraser found the smoking gun that the president now has to deal with. Now let's carry on with this line of imagination, right? Because it could get even more complex than that. We know that in our country, constitutionally, you can be president of the country while not being president of the governing party, right? And so if hypothetically speaking, so were not to be re-elected, as uh, as president of the ANC, for whatever reason, step aside rule including, he would still remain the president of the country for at least the next two years. Well, until they recall him. <laughs> I'm joking. Yes. 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 Um, legally, yes, there is uh, a distinction between being the president of the ANC and obviously being the president of the country. You become a president of the country when 400 MPs assemble after a general election and then they say one 
one person, one amongst us must be the president of the country. So those are the 400 individuals that will then say you are the president of the country. Now, obviously, if an ANC has won the majority of the seats by default, then whoever their candidate is, is the one that emerges as the president. Mm -hmm. But if, for example, he were not to be re-elected in December, he still remains the president of the country until the ANC goes back to its members in parliament and says, oh, by the way, we want to withdraw the endorsement that we'd given to this individual. So therefore, once you lose the support of the ANC, obviously, if the other parties put up a candidate, then of course that's how you'd lose the presidency. So it, it happens every time when an ANC president's term ends after 10 years, if you've won a second term, in mm -hmm. that because there's this time lag between the ANC's own conferences and the country's general election, you have to, well, you do remain as president until the ANC decides otherwise. And how the decision is done is simply a question of who wins. So, of course, if it's someone that you are contesting against, then the question is, well, now that I've won the political battle, why should I let you run the state when mm -hmm. I've actually, you know, won the battle that matters the most? President, because obviously those that won is that won the general election. Let's speak now about the internal politics of the ANC. And this is a matter of national interest, even if you are not an ANC member or an ANC supporter yourself, because the governing party's politics are essentially our politics. In the absence of Sil Ramaphosa in the ANC, what other leadership candidates exist right now? <laughs> Because if you're talking about a legitimate ANC, a lot of people are speaking, well, the ANC is out of legitimate leaders, including or excluding Sumer Raposa, whichever way you look at it. Uh, other people will tell you that this essentially would have been the last strike that the ANC had. If they can't get it right now, it will be over for them. Would you agree with that assertion? There is. The, the actual data that we've seen over the past few electoral cycles in that the ANC is definitely losing support. Mm -hmm. Now, remember last year when the local government elections uh, were taking place, the ANC essentially made one poster and they reprinted it across the country. Mm -hmm. And the reason they said they did that is that of all the political leaders that they have, their current president is the one who probably has the greatest sense of social legitimacy out there. Mm -hmm. So that's something that they've acknowledged themselves. So they didn't go and print posters of all the other candidates that they're putting out there um, into the different um, uh, voting structures. That's an acknowledgement that we're in crisis and the closest we get to any sense of, uh, of, of, of social legitimacy these days is if this man is behind our campaign or he's the face of our campaign. That the NC has acknowledged that is problematic because I remember uh, particularly in Nazrek, when I was there, and Gwede Mantashe was obviously supporting um, um, Asiru Ramaphosa's candidature. One of the things that he said to me is that it's tradition in the ANC that the deputy becomes the president. Mm -hmm. And then I said to him, I'd like to have this conversation in five years' time. Mm -hmm. Because now the question of, well, the, the delegates of Nazrek in 2017 decided on a leadership structure. There are the top six elected officials. There's the NEC that they appointed there. So the decision that they made in 2017 was to say, these are the best leaders that we have. Now, whether they still then think that they can put these leaders forward and then say we want to win a general election, particularly given what has happened since 2017, that is the question that the ANC has to deliberate on. And remember, we're not imposing this on them. They literally confessed to this last in the local government elections when they said, actually, everybody else creates problems for us, so therefore let us punt this one man. So when they lose them, I don't know if they have an answer of who becomes the face. And so maybe to wrap up the second hour of the show, and by the way, have no fear, Kaya will still be with us after five o'clock. I just want to play a song, Burner Boy. We are a music station after all. 
Uh, and then we'll come back and speak about the legitimacy now of President Sir Ramaphosa post this story that has broken.